Hello and welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. Coming up on this week's show, we've all the latest blues news. That bit won't take very long. We'll also look back on the time Steven Gerrard almost swapped Merseyside for West London and reflect on Chelsea's first FA Cup final victory at Wembley. All that to come on this edition of Straight Out of Cobham. So here we are again, friends. Another football-free week to endure. Fear not, though. The Athletics panel of Chelsea experts are here to make sure you get your blues buzz on. I'm Matt Davis-Adams. Joining me via the marvel of computer technology today are Simon Johnson. Good day. <laughs> Dominic Fifield. <laughs> oh, I can't match that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and Liam Toomey. Hello. <laughs> right. Before we get to the news, um, I want to talk about the real headline of the week, which is Liam's Keepy Uppy Challenge. Uh, I'm sure most people listening will have seen the clip posted to Liam's Twitter page last week of him showing his skills atop the roof of his penthouse pad. Uh, Liam, I counted 59. You claim you could have gone on longer. How pleased were you with the video and, and its response? Yeah, I was uh, I was pleased with the way it turned out. I'm going to answer this in, in proper football post-match parlance, <laughs> by the way. Um yeah, I was pleased. I mean, I just hit it and it went up in the air 59 times in a row. But um, I know I, I, I felt pretty comfortable and I, I tried a, a little flick, which I didn't need to try just to just to end end the video with um with a little bit of a flourish. Because I'm aware that me just doing endless kick ups for like five minutes is not going to be very good social content. Um, so I was thinking of the audience, really. Had you signed a sponsorship deal with with a manufacturer of certain aviator sunglasses? No, unfortunately not. They're not aviators. I can't afford avi- aviators. Um, and that's and it's not a penthouse pad. It, it, we, we framed it in such a way as to, to look that way. Um, and, and our colleague Adam Hurry wants me to, now wants me to do some sort of MTV-style cribs based on what he's seen. But it, it's not quite as grand as it looks. Um, I mean, I, I, want, I wanted initially to do like a Zlatan Ibrahimovic orange challenge, but we unfortunately oranges have have the street value of thousands of pounds at the <laughs> I think the main takeaway from it and I know Dom you've mentioned this and, and felt the same as I did was the sunglasses Dom who do you think wore them better uh, Toomey and Ealing or, or Cruz in Top Gun <laughs> oh definitely definitely Toomey but then, then I've then I've seen I've seen Liam turning up at press conferences in in said sunglasses before so it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge shock to me to see that that's what he uh that's what he wears when he when he attempts his keepy uppy challenges. But uh, yeah, it was spectacular. I don't know what Goose would have thought. Be able to see the ball. It's not it's not style. It's pure substance. <laughs> All right. So Simon is is the Goose to um, to Liam's Maverick. Simon, are you going to be doing just headers, <laughs> keepy up headers this week on the on the roof of your house for us? I, I'm quite happy with my um, without doing my daughter in the back garden when it comes to the keepy uppy front. Uh, if I can beat her, I, I'll just. I'll take that. That's just, that's uh, for me still an accolade, even though she's only just turned six. But in my advanced years, what's her PB, years, Simon? Uh, her her PB is um, probably one, and I can do two. So there we go. I'm winning. <laughs> Listener, it's not that we're struggling for content during these football free times. <laughs> <laughs> People just really want to know about this. Uh, let's get on with some news. It's a rather grandiose term, but but we'll use it anyway. Uh, we're recording this show on Monday, which is before the latest Premier League meeting regarding Project Restart. And we spoke last week about Frank Lampard's concern regarding the issues facing football and its resumption in, in this country. Well, on Sunday, it was reported that a third Brighton and Hove Albion player had tested positive for coronavirus. 
Um, Dom, how is this going to affect the, the proposed resumption of the league? We've also seen this situation in Germany with Dynamo Dresden having to go into quarantine as well. Does it all seem a bit fanciful to you that we'll be restarting next month? Look, the timescale might be optimistic for the 8th of June, but the reality is surely we expected this to happen. I mean, I think even the even the clubs that, whose, whose chairman have been most vocal about the need to get back playing, they knew this wasn't going to be an easy easy operation not, not you know beyond trying to convince the, the, the more skeptical chairman out there maybe with clubs with with more to lose uh, over what remains of this campaign i, I just think this is going to be a very very awkward and and difficult process finishing the season and there will be hiccups on the way and and worse um as the dynamo dresden situation has has shown uh, I think Steve Parrish went on the television on Sunday uh, and reiterated that this isn't an ideal situation, but it's the best of a worst of the worst situation. You know, this, this, just make the most of what you can for, from this, and let's just get through the season and make sure that that money from the broadcasters comes through and sustains football over over the rest of this calendar year. Simon, we've heard a lot from Steve Parrish we've also heard from the likes of Scott Duxbury and Paul Barber at Watford and Brighton as well Karen Brady obviously weighed in very early on they're all parties with with vested interest in terms of not getting relegated are are you surprised that that there's been pretty much silence from the hierarchy at Chelsea or is is that the wisest way for for them to play it it's probably the wisest thing for them to do um, because that it only invites uh criticism of self-interest which is something that's been labelled at at some of those clubs you mentioned or certainly most of those clubs you mentioned only Crystal Palace and Steve Parrish have of course um, the reason why his views were taken so um, credibly and and so um, it responded to so well is because it came from someone that that was not worrying about the top end of the table or the bottom end Um, so perhaps gave a fair reflection of, of of the current situation but I just think with Chelsea they would obviously love to get football going again but why get involved publicly in a debate which I'm sure they are raging um, and, and making behind the scenes and, and Liam of course they they have a reasonable amount of influence one would imagine in these Premier League meetings being being one of the elite one of the the top six does that mean that, that their voice will will carry a bit more credence to it yeah I think so and I think you know, you've seen the framing of all of these reports that the the clubs that have a vested interest in avoiding relegation are are not enough in number to stop anything that the Premier League wants to do in terms of the voting. They can, in practice, make things very very difficult if they choose to to obstruct in a lot of different ways and also try to to maximise some of the many other fears there are around restarting football. But I mean, on on a wider point, I think that there just has to be acceptance from all the clubs that this is going to be a huge logistical challenge. And if they're not prepared to finish the season through positive tests, then there's no point in them even trying because there will be positive tests. There already have been. There will continue to be, um, no matter what the bubble you try to build around these squads and around stadiums. The nature of this virus means that it it, it will have its say, and and it and it will affect the sporting integrity of what remains of the season because you will have players and maybe even entire squads randomly having to quarantine at different points. But if you want to finish the season and you want to generate that additional income um, and prevent a whole 
raft of further problems down the line, then you're going to have to accept that th- this may well be the, the best of a situation in which there are no good solutions. Yeah, it's going to be a bumpy old journey, but hopefully it will be concluded sooner rather than later. Right, let's take a trip down memory lane, shall we? Destination Merseyside, but nearly West London. Harry sponsors Straight Out of Cobham, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who are sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, rich lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover. Now, I've got a full lockdown beard going on at the moment, but thankfully, Harry's have sent me a shaving kit to get rid of it. I'm looking forward to getting cracking, and of course, I will let you know all about the results. As a listener of Straight Out of Cobham, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash Cobham right now. That's harrys.com forward slash Cobham. So Dom's got a piece up on The Athletic now detailing the time Steven Gerrard nearly joined Chelsea back in 2005. That gives us the perfect excuse to revisit the transfer that never was. Uh, Dom, when was the move first mooted and, and who was it who made the initial contact? We could probably go back further to the period just um, in 2004 um, when... Gerard was, he just finished the season at Liverpool, 30 points off the top of the table. Arsenal have just been um, unbeaten. And uh, Mourinho clearly, Jose Mourinho, newly appointed um, at Stamford Bridge, clearly had an admiration for him. He, uh, he he told his England players to have a word with Stephen Gerrard at the, the Euros that summer in Portugal to try and unsettle him. Um a regular tactic, one that actually Gerard says admits that he he employed with a young Wayne Rooney, uh, rather optimistically hoping that he might swap <laughs> uh, Everton for Liverpool at that stage. But look, it didn't. That didn't come off that that summer. Um, Gerard ended up giving a press conference when he, after England's elimination, in which he pledged his future to Rafael Benitez's Liverpool. But there were various various points over the the subsequent season, the o four o five campaign where he he made it very clear that he wasn't happy with the way things were going at Liverpool. They were still well off the pace in the Premier League and now Chelsea were setting that pace. Um, there was the League Cup final against Chelsea in which he scored a, an, an unfortunate own goal and uh, that, that prompted a, some abuse amongst Liverpool supporters um, which was overheard by his, his mother and, and girlfriend in the stands and I, I think that again was a bit of a an eye opener for him um and then obviously he goes and wins the the champions league this sort of personal odyssey that he had in the europe that season culminating in istanbul with the 3-0 comeback uh, against ac milan and I, I was at the game and immediately after that match he he spoke to the media and said how could i possibly be leaving the, leave this club now you know this is a, a player that had had almost postponed new contract talks over the entirety of that season because he wasn't sure where Liverpool were going and and there he was saying look I'll give me give me the pen give me the give me the contract I'll sign anything now you know the suggestion was and the, and the hope was from all sides that he would return to 
to Merseyside with the European Cup and promptly sign a new contract, pledging his future there, and they'd build the entire team around Steven Gerrard, this talismanic, iconic figure. The reality was that that contract was not forthcoming for in the subsequent six or seven weeks, and that has prompted this new wave of speculation, which Chelsea capitalised upon, or at least they thought they had. So they capitalised on it to a point, Simon. Is it is it fair to, to criticise the, the club and the people who were making these kind of decisions at the time for, for not getting it over the line, or, or was it always going to be the kind of situation where once Gerard sat down and reflected on it with, with his dad, as Don points out in the piece, that, that he would come to the conclusion that he was going to end up staying at Liverpool? Do you think it was always just a, a bit of a flirtation on his part? No, I think it was more to it than that. And I think in, in his piece, sort of Don rightly sort of suggests, you know, sort of what, you know, why Why did Chelsea hesitate, perhaps if they'd bid a bit more money, etc. Uh, at the time, um, it could have it could have sealed the deal. Um, it was always going to be difficult for Chelsea to, to convince Gerard to move south because, as, as Gerard himself admitted in his book, that the, the main reason that he wanted to leave was for Mourinho. It wasn't for Chelsea itself. Um, now, Mourinho is a very persuasive figure, but perhaps Gerard needed more um, than just sort of one man, one very, very persuasive man, Mourinho, at the peak of his powers to get him to, to make that final decision. In my opinion, and obviously it's very easy to say because um, it never actually happened, but I think it was probably for the best for the two sort of protagonists of the of the England football team in, in Gerard and Frank Lampard because as as England found, they could never get those two to play well together and I think it would have inevitably brought that headache upon Mourinho even though it was a headache that he welcomed um, and I think Mourinho um, I think Lampard sorry uh, was someone that really relished in sort of being able to call the shots in that midfield just as Gerrard relished in having that responsibility at Liverpool so so weirdly whilst it was seen as a big disappointment at the time I think things sort of worked out for the best fascinating angle in this Liam is is the Mourinho factor particularly I think younger listeners will be interested in this because we're talking 2005 Jose Mourinho when, when his kind of cult of personality was was at its absolute peak and and Gerard's manager at the time Rafael Benitez had a, a very different hands-off style approach with players it's it's Difficult to imagine Mourinho having those kind of powers of wooing somebody of the status that Gerard had at the time. These days, it, it was a particular skill of his at this early phase of his managerial career. Yeah, definitely. He had a he had a, a unique allure, and that was partly the the success, this amazing rise he'd had um, through Porto to Chelsea. But it was in large part the cult of personality that that he'd built up, and I think you know Gerard obviously spoke to to Lampard and to Terry and to the other English Chelsea players and and would have had a pretty good idea even before Mourinho started talking directly to him of of what an effective uh, and charismatic communicator this guy was I mean he, Lampard always says that the Mourinho made him feel like the best player in the world and and it's clear from from the the bits of Dom's piece that refer to their communications that he did the same for Gerard as well and it, and Mourinho can be very, very charming, even now when he wants to be, although he increasingly doesn't want to be. <laughs> uh, and and it's it's easy to see why Gerard would have been so swayed by that. And, and he actually goes as far as to say, in the bits that, that Dom's quoted in the piece, of saying that he was more 
wooed by Mourinho than by Chelsea in truth and and maybe that's why uh, ultimately the move didn't come off because it was based so squarely on on Mourinho's charm as for the bit on on whether him and Lampard could have played together I think there's there's maybe a certain parallel to be drawn with with when Michael Ballack joins Chelsea because um, another very similar part passing midfield general uh, and I think he and Lampard were always a little bit of an uneasy balance um, and maybe Gerard would have been similar, although it's also fair to say that for England, uh, they never had a Makaleli behind them to balance it all. And the closest they ever got was Owen Hargreaves, who couldn't stay fit. Uh, so that was probably part of why Lampard and Gerard weren't the cleanest fit. But in the end, it didn't work out too badly for Chelsea because they went out and signed Michael Essien, who maybe was an even better balance for, for Lampard and Makaleli in that midfield. And, and, and it clearly didn't really affect how much they won in the next few years. So as Liam says, Dom, Chelsea get Essien rather than Gerrard, who was the man that Mourinho wanted. But but Mourinho, not bitter about it in any way, it would seem. In fact, he uh, he gave Gerrard a letter, which you mentioned in the piece, via John Terry acting as postman. Yeah, that, that, that was a bit later, but in 2015, there was a charity match between a, a Gerrard 11 and a Jamie Carragher 11 at Anfield for the Liverpool Foundation. And and John Terry attended the game um, and post-match handed Gerard this letter, handwritten on Chelsea notepaper, no less. Um, this is obviously in Jose's second stint as, as Chelsea manager. And, and it's just a, basically congratulating Gerard on his on his career and, and expressing this regret that they never got to work together. And bear in mind that Mourinho attempted to, he, he says he attempted to sign him at Inter Milan. Gerard's never confirmed that. But he definitely tried to sign him for Real Madrid um, as well, and and you know Madrid were were constant suitors, um, and 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 might have actually been a slightly more palatable club in terms of the you know the Merseyside supporters. It should if Gerard had actually left Liverpool for someone else, Real Madrid would have been far more palatable than Chelsea. Um, just one thing on the there was one there was one particular day back in in 2005 that I'll never forget I was a Merseyside correspondent at the time so I was dealing this with from this with from the Liverpool point of, of view really um we were sat outside Melwood Liverpool's training ground um a couple of journalists sitting in a car with our laptops on our knees when the news came through that Gerard had handed in this transfer request it, which you know at the time was him agitating for a move to Chelsea although in hindsight I do wonder whether it was actually him hoping that Liverpool would, would basically get get on with offering him the contract that he expected. Um, and so we started tapping away on our laptops in the in the front seats of the car. And suddenly the next thing we know, we're being, we've got kids all around on the outside, peering in through the windows, wondering what, what, we're, what we're typing. And Stupid Muggins here had his, has his laptop screen actually sort of put down so that I could actually see what I was writing. And... Um, yeah, all those kids read the intro Stephen Gerrard last night handed in the transfer request. Uh, and within about 20 seconds, all all 20 kids were rocking the car in absolute disgust as we were going side by side. We actually had to speed away just to get away and finish our copy and, and, and basically save ourselves. But it was that type of emotion, that the, the, the transfer um, possibility kindled on Merseyside. It was, it was something else and it really was the talk of the town for... For successive summers. I think the Gerard saga was a significant chapter in, in how the Chelsea-Liverpool rivalry um, became stronger and certainly more incendiary from a from a Liverpool perspective. There was this kind of feeling from Anfield as like, how dare this 
this club, this this club that's just come out of nowhere with their money, their flash money from London, um, take try and take our best player. Um, and that, that really sort of, as well as the football games between the two sides, I think the audacity of Chelsea trying to sort of buy their way to success was kind of seen as this sort of the worst thing about football from a Liverpool point of view. And it, and it of course, led to many chants over the years from, from Chelsea contingent about Gerrard's failure to win the Premier League. Um, and certainly that slip in 2014... Um, became a very popular ditty, which is still sung to this day. Um, but I was also um, thought it'd be quite worthy of pointing out the Gerard's final game at Stamford Bridge, where Chelsea fans went through their full repertoire of Gerard's songs. Um, but when he was substituted, all four stands, including the Liverpool fans, of course, um, stood up and applauded him. Um, which I thought was quite a nice gesture by Chelsea fans to almost admit oh, look, all, all this banter over the years is just exactly that. All these songs was just a bit of banter, but deep down, it was full, we're full of respect. Um, but Gerard, you'd expect him to sort of say something along those lines afterwards, but um, it clearly got to him because he just said, uh, they slaughtered me all day, it's nice of them to turn up for once. you would have got uh, on great wouldn't he if he'd signed it would have been a match made in heaven yeah so um i I just thought i was in a way it was good because gerard sort of put the put the sort of rivalry back in place instantly and i think that's another again another reason why the gerard songs are still sung to this day because um he refused to accept their magnanimous gesture and um and so yeah it's uh still sung to this day (laughs) right to finish this off then, I'm springing this on the three of you, but I'm, I'm expecting good answers anyway. If you could sign one current player from a big six rival to go into the Chelsea team of 2020, who would it be and why? And uh, Liam, I'm going to give the other two some thinking time by coming to you first. Oh, great. <laughs> um, Kevin De Bruyne. Wow, you can't say that. That was my one. <laughs> and how ironic is that? I mean, you would pick Kevin De Bruyne, wouldn't you? But Chelsea have had the chance to um, to have him, and, and I guess there might be another pick who'd be in that same situation. Well, given the given the way that Chelsea this season struggled for creativity in so many home games, I think he's he's probably the pick. The maybe the the best. Um, creative midfielder of his generation and he's morphed into just the perfect modern Premier League midfielder as well so yeah I mean I don't need to justify Kevin De Bruyne but here I am and and Dom that's actually a nice comparison back to the piece isn't it because you think Jose Mourinho had the personality and the ability to almost get Steven Gerrard from Liverpool to Chelsea but he didn't have it however many years later to keep Kevin De Bruyne at Chelsea yeah, I mean, look, it was a different situation with, with De Bruyne and you could argue the same with Mo Salah um, as well. Um, weirdly, I was, I, was, I was contacted the other day by, by somebody who's writing a book about Romelu Lukaku and, and another player that, that came with a big reputation at 18, 19 to Chelsea and, and uh, never really fulfilled it. I don't think he scored a league goal for, for the club. Um, it, those guys maybe lacked... A bit of patience, um, and and Mourinho was having to contend and and almost get them involved in in on, from the periphery, and he didn't do it in a particularly good way, admittedly, and that's why they left. They grew frustrated and they left. 
Um, but then we we have to appreciate the, the certain pressures that, that Chelsea managers come under as well, for, for instance, success and whether that can, they can, back then, they were allowed to develop talent in the way that, that was a bit more, with a bit more foresight. Um, so Mourinho was using a very different skill set you know, to to try and keep Kevin De Bruyne happy than than, than to to woo Steven Gerrard down, I I would have gone De Bruyne as well on that question. But Salah is another another great example of a of one a player that got away. He would he would add something to Chelsea now with his natural goal scoring ability. Mm. All right, then Simon, are you going to pick Virgil Van Dijk to um, help for Kyoto Mori's development? <laughs> oh, you saw right through me, Matt. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, I think probably the next outstanding candidate would would have to be Van Dijk because the the one one of the main sort of flaws in the current Chelsea team has been defensively um, that sort of domineering centre back um, who can not only organise some set pieces but just organise full stop and yeah I think all the other four have got their qualities but perhaps uh, sort of need that one sort of outstanding centre-back to play off and, and no one will dispute that Van Dijk is the the best centre-half in the league. So, yeah, it would have to be Van Dijk, who, of course, Chelsea wanted to buy um, in the first place, but Liverpool beat them to it. Say so the same for Alisson, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say the same for a lot of players. Um, so, Van Dijk's not coming to Chelsea, neither is Gerrard either, but do read that piece by Dom. It is excellent, although it might make you yearn a little. Okay, next we're going to flash back to the 1997 FA Cup final. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the athletic listeners get two extra free beers. So this coming weekend will mark the 23rd anniversary of the 1997 FA Cup final in which Chelsea beat Middlesbrough 2-0 to win the cup for just the second time in club history and the first time they'd done so at Wembley. A happy end to a poignant season following the death of Matthew Harding. Um, I hadn't really thought too much, Simon, about, about what a significant campaign this was and it must have been fairly cathartic for those involved at the top end of the club to, to end it you know, with a reason to, to smile and some success after what had been such a, such a difficult preceding six or seven months. Yeah, and it was also a rich reward for the quality of football that was played under Rude Hullet. Um there was a a year before when Glenn Hoddle decided to to leave Chelsea for for England. Um, there was a possibility that Ken Bates was considering uh, the chairman at the time of hiring the ex Arsenal manager George Graham. Um, and in the final 
league game of that season, the Chelsea fans um, made it pretty clear what they thought of that idea. Um, I won't repeat exactly what the chant was, but <laughs> it words were along the lines of "You can stick George Graham," and and then I'll let your imagination run away with you. Uh, <laughs> and then there was also chants of "Rudy, Rudy." And, um, of course, they were referring to Ruth Hullett, who was just a, a player at the time. Um, but what a player he was. He, he, he basically only played one full season for Chelsea, uh, but finished runners-up in the Player of the Year poll to Eric Cantona. He was he was that good. Um, even though Chelsea were a mid-table side, he got them to the FA Cup semi-final, uh, largely um, on his own off his own back. But they were beaten by United in 96 in the semi-final. Um, so the following season, it was it was it was him basically finishing what Hoddle had begun, and and he sort of started as a bit as a player um, of just turning this entertaining Chelsea side into a side that could win. And of course, you got to remember Chelsea hadn't won anything since 1971 um, of any certainly anything of any note, and um, and Chelsea did it in style. It was a very very entertaining side. Of course, Gianfranco Zola. Uh, came in a Hullet signing, um, really made a massive difference. Went on to be Football Writers Player of the Year that season, and yeah, it was a glorious day out at Wembley, which was pretty much all over within forty-three seconds, thanks to Roberto Di Matteo. Yeah, the fastest cup final goal at the time. Before we got to Wembley, though, Dom, there was the game against Liverpool in round four at Stamford Bridge. That's that's a game that's kind of gone down in in Chelsea folklore over the years. This is the two-nil Liverpool in the lead, and then Chelsea storm back to win four-two and. Mark Hughes and running right, etc. Whenever you see footage of that game, there was there was there was building work taking place at Stamford Bridge that then, wasn't there? And there was one end of the ground, was it? That was that it was, was what was some... the North Stand, which would become the go. Matthew Harding Stand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it does feel like a different era when you see footage of it, but at the time, that 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 was a game that that, that almost sent shockwaves around. I mean, I know Chelsea had this great record at places like Old Trafford they, they you know they did really well at Manchester United um but but Liverpool although they weren't you know they, they weren't at, at their peak in any in any sense really they'd come close the previous season in that in that great title run in with Newcastle and United as well but that 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 was a result that made you sit up and take notice you know Liverpool being dismantled in that way and properly beaten, and and I remember watching it on the television at the time, thinking, "Wow, that's," uh, and that is a really attractive Chelsea team that, that playing a different type of football. It was, I don't know, they, they had something about them, a, a pizzazz about them that, that that set them apart, and obviously, you know, the Italian flavour to it all as well, which uh, which helped. So that that was a that was a great occasion. One thing on the on on the final, Fabrizio Ravinelli um, coming off midway through that first half obviously helped Chelsea out. I just wonder what 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 it did for for Chelsea's backline, but also for the Middlesbrough's support to see that Mikel Beck came on to to replace him. Um, <laughs> that, that's not a that's not a, a fair substitution, really, is it? No, it did at least boost their offside statistics, if um, if nothing else. <laughs> uh, Liam, how how important was this win in, in laying the groundwork for for future success? It was obviously a while before the. The league titles started rolling in, but but other cups soon followed after this. Yeah, it was the start of what was at the time the most successful run in, in Chelsea's history. And it was a real validation for... It was a real validation of what Ken Bates and Colin Hutchinson had, had begun to build with Glenn Hoddle and then obviously kicking on with Rude Hullet, exploiting the, the Bosman rule to bring in 
so many international players. Um, at this point, with this final, there were only, what, three or four in the team. Um, but there were there was another wave that followed in the summer afterwards. And I think the fact that Chelsea won the FA Cup helped them get players like Gus Poyet and Tor Andre Flo and you know the the other big international players that followed and and really turned them into a, a team to be to be noticed in on, on the European stage as well as the English stage and you know in in some ways the peak of that team is the the Champions League campaign of of 99-2000 but none of that happens and and even the title race you know the the genuine title challenge of 98-99 none of that happens none of it is possible without Chelsea winning this first FA Cup and and really kicking things off and it it set in motion I think what a lot of Chelsea fans um, still regard as the construction of maybe the most watchable Chelsea team of our lifetimes and 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 the most likable Chelsea team of our lifetimes and and as we've mentioned it was achieved in in spectacular style with that Di Matteo goal which probably remains the the most spectacular FA Cup final goal. Yeah, there's a reason why I particularly remember the 97 Cup final. Um, You have to remember that certainly back in the day, the FA Cup final was still the game that everyone wanted to watch. Perhaps that's not the case so much these days, but still back then, the the FA Cup still had a lot of grandeur about it. So like any football fan, um, I'd go out of my way to, to, to watch the final every year, except... The 97 Cup final, I was actually on a year out in Australia, uh, travelling around the country, um, and I ended up in a place called Broome, which is in Western Australia, and uh, surrounded by backpackers, and we're all talking about, oh, how are we going to watch the game? How are we going to watch the game? Well, the news was broken to us that there are only two channels, uh, two TV channels being broadcast in Broome at the time, neither of which were showing the cup final. Um, so basically it ended up with a bunch of us backpackers all hovered round the uh, BBC World Service, so the old transistor radio. It was almost like going back in uh, many decades before um, to list, try and listen to the game. And I, I was actually sat with a Middlesbrough fan and we only just turned the radio on when, of course, the commentary exploded into all kinds of wild wild noises the commentator going berserk and sort of obviously realized that Chelsea taken the lead so I decided to buy the buy the Middlesbrough fan a beer because he already looked like all was lost of course Middlesbrough had just been relegated and I thought I'll just buy him a consolation beer because clearly he thought the next 89 minutes was going to be a painful listen so um, I thought I'd help him out (laughs) I was going to say I was actually at the 97 FA Cup final with my dad oh you um, you get sitting on sitting on the halfway line opposite the royal box, and oh, wow. we missed Di Matteo's goal. Oh, oh no! <laughs> we we recorded the entire <laughs> we, we recorded the entire day's coverage. Obviously, in case you get the camera pans up to the stand and catches my my youthful face. Um, but yeah, we were still flicking through the program when Di Matteo crashed that one in, in off the crossbar. I didn't see it till later. <laughs> Well, look, here's hoping that if the 2020 FA Cup final ever gets played, Chelsea are in it, and you're there for the Athletic, Liam, with eyes fixed firmly on the game from kickoff. Well, it was a good it was a good practice for a journalism career of making sure that I'm not staring at my laptop when things happen. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what's worse, 
Missing that or missing Drogba's equalise against Bayern, which is what I did, staring at the <laughs> aforementioned la- laptop whilst trying to meet the deadline. Anyway, shall Tweet. we get back to the pod? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> OK, that's just about it for this week. Before we go, let's talk about what you guys have up on The Athletic now for subscribers to enjoy. Liam, I very much enjoyed reading your piece on the history of the Chelsea women's team over my cornflakes this morning. Tell, tell those who haven't yet a little bit about it and who features. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. I, I very much enjoy putting it together um, because it's uh, it it aims to be a bit more of a comprehensive um, history of Chelsea women who who were only founded in the you know in in the modern form in 1992, and there were there was lots about that period from from 1992 to kind of the mid 2000s that I knew absolutely nothing about. So it was really interesting to speak to the club's first manager, Tony Farmer. Um, who essentially just wrote a letter to the club in in '92 saying, "Do you fancy having a women's team?" Uh, and that's how it all got started. And there's some lovely stories, well, some really insightful stories about that time of their kind of nomadic existence, training, playing in different places. They even played at Fulham's old training ground at one point. Um, and then, and then obviously segueing into talking to people like Claire Rafferty, um, Paul Green, who's Emma Hayes's assistant. And Magda Eriksson, who I, I ran a big interview with last week um, about the more modern Chelsea women and how they've risen to become genuine powerhouses of, of the English and European game. And uh, I think it's a, a remarkable success story and it was one that I really enjoyed telling. Yeah, it's a great read. If, you, if you're a Chelsea supporter, you'll, you'll get a lot out of that. Um, Don, we've spoken at length about your Gerard piece. You also contributed to something on French football, uh, which Alistair's might enjoy. Yeah, I mean, obviously France is is coping with the, or trying to cope with the same situation that we have here, except that the the French government announced very early on that that football would not be coming back. Uh, there will not be any sport. Well, the government actually said there won't be any sporting occasions in in France until September. Although I think that that stance has mellowed slightly, and there might be some behind closed doors in August. But that that has created its own problems. Um, France is very much la, la Ligue 1, Ligue 2 are very much divided as to whether that was the right approach. Um, there's the threat of legal action and um, and a lot of financial uncertainty as well. So in, in many ways, maybe France is, is showing what might happen in this country if um, you know we are forced ultimately to, to abandon the Premier League season. Uh, Simon, meanwhile, with nostalgia being all the rage, you've been looking back on that night in Barcelona eight years ago. Yeah, primarily as part of a sort of a best of um, series that that we're doing at the moment at the, at the Athletic, and and my choice has been received with a bit of a few of raised eyebrows. Um, it was basically a, a piece on the best comeback in Chelsea's history. Um, now I picked the the two all game against Barcelona in 2012 um, for more than just the scoreline. Um, of course, Chelsea were 2-0 down with 10 men and came back to draw 2-2 and that helped them get through the Champions League final. But I also picked that for the comeback in terms of the amount of adversity they were going through at the time going into that game and, and also in the game itself. Um, so I've also made the cheeky suggestion, which has got very short shrift for my colleagues, uh, Don being one of them, um, that it was arguably the greatest comeback in by any British European club in European competition. Um, but again, whilst making a note, certainly in, in and nodding my head firmly in Liverpool's direction, 
and Manchester United for that matter. I, I still think that that performance that night is very underrated uh, in the grand scheme of things, in, in uh, certainly as far as any British club goes. But I'd also draw readers and listeners to the attention of the, the loans piece that me and Liam did, which um, we interviewed eight players between us and uh, certainly got a lot of views from them about how they feel as a Chelsea loanee um, and how they're treated as a Chelsea loanee and they go into a lot of detail about what life is like for them and, and certainly give a, a perhaps a more positive impression of what life is like for them than, than perhaps many people think. Ahead of time. Yeah, absolutely. I um I read that over the weekend, and and the players themselves have quite a different perception to to maybe what the outside perception is of the the Chelsea loan system. Listener, remember you can take advantage of a free trial to get ninety days worth of the Athletic for absolutely nothing. Just go to theathletic.com slash Chelsea Pod to sign up. Well, that will do us for today. Thanks for your company as ever, listener. If you do want to like and subscribe, rate us wherever you get your podcast. That would all be fabulous. Helps us out. But from Simon, from Liam, from Dom and from me, it's bye for now. We'll see you next week. 